We're in James this morning, picking up uh, what I intend for, as the Lord wills, my little series through James. Um, Scott is taking us through Galatians, and I think James is such a wonderful compliment, uh, but I'm moving much slower. The last time I preached in James was uh, back in June of last year. <laughs> so, uh, we're looking at James 1, verse 5 through verse 8. Let's pray. Father, help us now. We thank you so much for your grace poured out into our lives and for the fact that you will hold us fast, that you gather us together with your people to celebrate you together, to be reminded of these beautiful truths of your salvation. Help us now speak through your word and give me grace in reflecting on these things. Stir our hearts, spirit, be with us and drive this truth deep into our hearts. Open your word to us and open our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. James 1, verse 5 reads, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what is this passage about? At first glance, it's about wisdom. This is the point from where James pivots from the previous two verses, um, or verses 2 through 4. He pivots. Uh, from a future goal that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, to the present reality. And what is the present reality? We lack. We lack many things, but foremost in James's mind here is that we lack the wisdom to know how to meet all the various circumstances in life with joy and steadfastness. Our trials that we go through, which he mentioned in verses 2 through 4, trials of various kinds, our trials tend more towards, towards exasperation than celebration. We can't see how this illness or this weakness or this lack does any good. We need wisdom. We take another step in our passage, though, and we seem to be talking about prayer. And certainly there are lessons to be learned about in the school of prayer here. These words remind us of things Jesus taught. For instance, in Matthew 7, 7, where He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. We need to pray. But ultimately, this passage is about God. A God described here as one who gives generously to all and who does not reproach. So what do we do with this God? We come to Him. We come to Him in faith. We come in need. We come believing in a God who is single-minded and committed in His generous mercy. We come willing to take Him at His word. This passage instructs us where to turn for wisdom. It tells us to pray. But ultimately, like so much of Scripture, its focus is more foundational. 
This passage teaches us to trust God. And specifically, I want us to see James helping us to put our faith in God by pushing back against the things that keep us from faith. Three things. Pride, fear, and doubt. We'll find these here in what James writes. We want to reject the pride that keeps us from admitting our need. We want to reject the fear that keeps us from coming to God. And we want to reject the doubt that keeps us from committing ourselves wholly to Him. So first, we have the call to reject your pride. Reject the pride that keeps you from admitting your need. Our passage opens this with these words, If anyone, if any of you lacks Wisdom, which could seem a little bit like saying, if any of you need air. We do, all of us. Wisdom, if, if you understand it as understanding that enables good living, a right thinking that enables right action, well, we all need that. When James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he's not so much separating groups of those who need wisdom from those who don't. He's separating those who can admit it from those who won't. And when we say that, we should be careful in our hearts because we're not talking about those guys, those people out there who won't admit how much they need God's help. I'm talking about me. Of course, we don't see ourselves this way. We, we readily admit our need. We you know, get a promotion at work, or you have another baby, or you take on a ministry role, or consider a building campaign, and you will say, boy, I need wisdom. We need a lot of wisdom. We're good with the words. But even though we're good with the words, we're good at admitting our need in the abstract, we forget it when it comes down to the details. In the details of cracked windows, packed schedules, stacked laundry, I am usually not thinking, wow, God has laid out a path here of joy-filled obedience. I need His wisdom to find it. No, in those situations... I am not so much thinking about my need for wisdom. I am thinking about how my circumstances need to change. And ironically, it's precisely in those circumstances where we are most in need of wisdom that we fail to see it at all. Now remember the context of these verses in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. In the midst of our trials of various kinds, we forget that God has a different agenda than we do. He is not aiming for my MRD, my maximum reduction in discomfort, as much as I would like Him to be doing that. He is aiming to produce steadfastness and to make us perfect. When we forget what God's primary agenda is, we forget our primary need. We need wisdom. That's what we need. I need change in here and in here. 
And we need that particularly in our trials, when the circumstances get hard. But in my trials, what do I think I need? I need, tri- I need change out here. I need less stress. I need more money. I need more time. I need my kids to quit bickering. I need my spouse to change. See, in our pride, we have this assumption, I do at least, that I'm already pretty good. If we can just sort some things out here, then everything will be hunky-dory. You know, I mean, we grade ourselves an A-, minus, maybe a B plus on a bad day. But that's just because we're grading on the curve. We, we excuse all of our failings and all of our sins as all you could expect given the circumstances. Given what I have to work with, isn't it remarkable how much confidence we have in our ability to read the circumstances and decide how, wh- what grade we should get? We talk about our need for God to give wisdom, but we act as if we've already figured it out. We already know what He needs to do out here to make us be able to have the good life. I mean, isn't that this why we sink down into despair? Some of us struggle more with this. We sink down into despair. We say, this is an impossible situation. There is no way to walk this path with joy. Or, or think of the connection to our anger. Why do we yell? Why do we fume or get bitter? Those don't come from a heart praying, God, I need wisdom to embrace these trials well. No, our anger comes from a heart that says, the only way for me to reach my joy, my success, my potential, is to break a few things. Break some hearts, break some laws, break some of God's laws. If despair says there is no way forward, anger says there is only one way forward and that is through you. Isn't that what James says in chapter 4 once we get there? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. what ties together despair and anger and so many of our other sinful responses, what ties them all together is that the, we assume that we are seeing everything. We are seeing the circumstances. We've got it figured out. There's pride there. We're, we, we already have a clear sight of our own heart, which we know lies to us. We already have a clear sight of the motive of others, which we actually don't know. They're hidden. We already have a clear sight of the final results, which are beyond us. And yet we are confident we know what's going on. Can, can we see the pride here? In all of these assumptions, and this pride keeps us from seeing our need. What is our need? We lack wisdom. We, we, we don't see it all. But there is someone who does. There is a God who sees it all and who calls in Proverbs 9 through the voice of wisdom, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And He calls here in our passage, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask 
God. The wisdom we need is not the intelligence to know what all the others around us should have done differently. It is, it's, it's not anything rooted in our righteousness or our resources. The wisdom we need is not rooted in us. In fact, it demands that we reject all of that. Reject that pride. Reject that dependence on self. And instead, in the words of Proverbs 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. This wisdom confesses, Finn actually helped me with this, this wisdom confesses in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So, our first step in faith, the first way we're going to overcome these obstacles to faith is to reject pride. Second, we reject fear. Reject the fear that keeps us from coming to God with our need. Okay, fear. What would we be afraid of? Things like being refused, resented, rejected, reproached. We're afraid that God will be a lot like us. That He will be reluctant and a little annoyed at us bringing our problems to Him. I think this is why James didn't just stop in the middle of verse 5. He doesn't say, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. He goes on. He makes a point to remind us of who God is. What He's like. This is the God who gives generously to all without reproach. God is not like us. He is not limited like us. He's not divided like us. He is not partial like us. And perhaps most surprisingly, He is not exacting like us. This is the God who is so perfect, yet He doesn't chide. He doesn't scold. He doesn't reproach. We, if we hear James, we can reject our fears and walk in faith today because God is a generous God. He is reliably generous and wholeheartedly generous. His generosity is not limited to a particular set of His favorites, the all-star Christians. And His generosity is not only in the dispersal of His gifts, but in the display of His grace toward us. So let's, let's look briefly at each of these. First, we can reject the fear of being refused. We can reject the fear of being refused. God is so reliably generous that He's described here in our text as the one who gives. It's that simple. James is confident that if a man asks God for wisdom, it will be given to him. That's what he says. Because that's who God is. So we can reject the fear of being refused. Second, we can reject the fear of being resented. God is not only the God who gives but the God who gives generously. This Greek adverb, uh, it's fascinating. Um, It's uh, aplos, you don't care. Uh, It only occurs here in the New Testament. But related word, cognate words, they they have the same root word, they uh, get split between the meanings of generosity 
and sincerity, simplicity, or even singleness. And if you go back to the Septuagint, this word group is primarily used to express the idea of sincerity, integrity, blamelessness, uprightness. Now at this point, I've lost all the kids and most of the adults. Why does it matter? It matters because generosity does not primarily measure the quantity of gifts. It measures the quality of the giver. It measures his heart. A generous person gives of themselves sincerely. They give simply. They don't have an ulterior motive. They just give because they want to give. And oftentimes that means they give a lot. They aren't double-minded, giving with one hand, but kind of wishing they didn't have to. Sharing their stuff while resenting you for needing it. Because we all know that guy, right? Some of us have been that guy. Kids, you've been here, right? Had somebody share something with you? Maybe a toy or a treat, but you knew they didn't want to? Actually, the Bible talks about that guy in Proverbs. Proverbs 23, verses 6-7 through tells us, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says, but his heart is not with you. He's watching you eat and drink, and he's thinking, that's going to cost me... God is not like that. He does not resent you. He does not resent you for coming to Him. He does not resent you for needing Him. He gives. And He gives generously. Third, we can reject the fear of being rejected. Reject the fear of being rejected. Some of us believe in God's generosity, but we don't think it's for people like us. James tells us it is. God gives generously to all. To all His children. To all. There is no favoritism in God's family. The Father has one favorite Son. And if you are in Christ, if you are washed by the blood, if you are wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, He looks at you and He says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You will not be rejected. Come to Jesus. Finally, we can reject the fear of being reproached. This expression, translated without reproach, or in some of your Bibles, without finding fault, is it's in the same form, verb form, a participle, um, as the, the, the participle that says, who gives. So, He is the God who does give and who doesn't reproach. Those are two big things you should know about God. Perhaps the only thing worse, the only worst type of giver than the stingy man we just talked about from Proverbs 23 is the man who gives, but makes sure you never forget it. He reproaches. He chides. He makes you pay through the nose for what he got, what he gave. He makes you pay in groveling. He makes you pay in shame. God is not like that. 
this has been convicting for me while preparing the, the message to notice how regularly I slip into a scolding tone. That's not how God treats His children. He does, he does rebuke us. There are places for that. Yet He's so gentle with that. When He comes to the disciples after He rises again, and He says things like, Oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have written. He does have gentle rebukes for us. He does correct us. But Psalm 103, which I regularly go back to, I think I've mentioned it in the last several sermons. I'm just going to keep coming back to it. This is how God is towards us. He is the God in Psalm 103, verse 8, who is the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That's the sort of father he is. He does not reproach us. He does not always chide. And we get a picture of this sort of father in the story Jesus tells of the prodigal son. This son, he deserved to be reproached. He had taken his father's wealth He had demanded, give me my inheritance now. I wish you were dead. Just give it to me now. And he takes it and he goes and he squanders it. Some of us have done that sometimes. But when he comes home, When he comes home, he says, My God, my father is a good man. He'll take me in. I'll be better as a servant. And his father doesn't read him the riot act. He doesn't tell him all the things he did wrong or what he had given him. He doesn't remind him of what he squandered, the great, fabulous wealth throws him a party. This is the God. This is the God who says, come to me. This is why we can reject fear. Because God is not like us. He is reliably generous, wholeheartedly generous, impartially generous, and mercifully generous. So reject your fear, whatever fears you have, and come to Him in faith. Thirdly, we come in faith by rejecting our doubt. Reject the doubts that keep you from committing yourself wholly to God and relying completely on Him. 
to think to speak of rejecting doubts could seem ridiculous to you. To some, it could seem like arguing in a circle. Okay, how do you get faith? You get it by rejecting doubt. And how do you do that? Well, you're going to have to believe more. And you just are in this circle. We think of doubt sometimes as the space not occupied by faith. It's kind of this vacuum. How do you reject the absence of something? And, and for some, the idea of rejecting faith is not only ridiculous, it's foolish or even dangerous. I'm sorry, the, the idea of rejecting doubt would be not only ridiculous, but, but foolish or dangerous. Doubt is seen by some as an intellectual virtue. It, it, it is a sign of your honesty. Our passage, though, pushes back on both of these. Doubt is not passive, and it's not neutral. Look at verses 6 through 8 back in James. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. At first, this seems harsh. It almost seems at odds with the generous grace pictured in verse 5. Is this the God who doesn't reproach, now reproaching us for having imperfect faith? What are we supposed to do with this? I think a lot of young Christians run across this and what should be in verse 5, this this call to come to God in faith and, and bring our prayers to Him, we begin to worry, do I have enough faith though? If I come to Him with faith and have even a little bit of doubt, is He just going to scowl at me? What do we do with these verses? Well, like any verses that are a little tough, we, we learn to listen for what they say in the context of the whole letter, in the context of the whole Bible. This is the God as we heard in Psalm 103 who is merciful and gracious, who does not treat us as our sins deserve, who remembers we are dust, This is Jesus of whom it was prophesied of in Isaiah 42. A bruised reed He will not break. And a faintly burning wick He will not quench. When a father with weak faith comes to Jesus, he brings his demon-possessed boy saying, if you can do anything, help us. Jesus doesn't say, pathetic. You get nothing. No. No, Jesus issues the gentle rebuke. If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the man responds, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus heals his son. James is not undoing what he just taught us about God's grace. And he is not telling us that, well... God actually is going to reproach you. What He's doing is He's warning us not to presume on God's grace. He's putting faith and doubt in in an active moral category. He's wanting us to see that these are categories not just of a mental slip-up or or you, you struggle, you stumble. We all stumble in many ways, James will say. But He wants us to see that there are categories here of identity and allegiance. 
This is what he's going to say when we get again to, to chapter 4. In chapter 4, he says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. So now he's back to asking again, just like in our passage. He says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That is, that's what James is out to do. And if you drop down actually to verse 8, we even see that he picks up this image, uh, expression of a devil-minded person. He says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Clean your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you devil-minded. What James wants to, us to see is that there is a real danger in disbelief. Doubt wants to swing us from seeking God's wisdom to live well no matter what our circumstances are. And in those circumstances, from saying, God, I trust that You will make a way. Doubt would swing us from that to saying, forget it. This is miserable. I'm not going to stay in this sort of life. I'm going to find a way out. I'm going to make a way for myself. This is what our sinful hearts do. I mean, think about the story of Saul in the Old Testament. He's made king. He has a promising start. And yet, there's this... Um, then yet, there's this story where he's, he's waiting before a battle at Gilgal. He's waiting for Samuel to show up. Samuel is... The, uh, the prophet, he will offer sacrifices to the Lord and pray for God's blessing in their, their, their fight against the Philistines. Samuel doesn't show up. So Saul takes it on himself. He says, okay, well, I can do this. I can slaughter an animal. I can offer a sacrifice. He makes a way for himself and he loses the kingdom. This sort of instability is what James pictures with wind and waves. And in the picture James gives, the, the, wind, the winds of doubt, they're not passive. We are not left here with this smooth lake surface. No, we've got turbulent waters because the winds are pushing this way and that. Doubt is active and must be actively resisted. It must be actively rejected. So then, why are we so often, maybe if you're anything like me, why are we internally passive? We listen to ourselves. Some of it's a habit. As Martin Lord jones many of you know his classic line, he says that we have this unhappy unha- un- un- uh, habit of listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. And he, he gives us instruction. He tells us to start talking to ourselves, arguing with ourselves, questioning ourselves, even preaching to ourselves. Our passivity towards doubt is a habit. It's also the result of hedging our bets. It's our way of diversifying our portfolio, which is great advice in finances and it's lousy advice in faith. The, uh, the, the hedging our bets is, is seen here in our passage in the expression, a double-minded man. We trust God to come through. But just in case He doesn't, we come up with a contingency plan. We, we want 
God's best. We, we, we want it. We believe God's way is best. But we also think that a life lived without certain necessary things is not worth living. And we put a lot of things in that bucket of necessary things. We can need so much. For the Israelites in the desert, what did they need? Fish, melons, leeks. How about for us? It might be respectability, fashion, money, sex, food, alcohol. Or or kids. For you, it might be a phone or dating or, or, or some sort of privilege that your parents just won't let you have. Doubt is not always questioning whether God can make a way. Sometimes it is questioning whether we want His way. James wants us to see the seriousness of doubt here in our passage. This is not something to mess around with. It is a matter of allegiance. Doubt calls God's goodness and His wisdom and His power into question. It divides our loyalties. And we can live so much of our lives here in this place where we're pulled in two different ways, staggering between two opinions, thinking somehow that we can get the best of both worlds. We can't. We lose it all. What does Jesus say? The man who seeks to gain his life will lose it. But the man who loses his life for my sake will gain it. If you are wrestling with doubt, the starting place is to settle where your loyalties lie. I think a lot of us could benefit from borrowing Elijah's ultimatum on Mount Carmel. He speaks to the people of Israel who were kind of worshiping Yahweh, but kind of not because they had all these other gods. And Elijah says, listen, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is, then follow Him. One way or the other, choose this day whom you will serve. And the great thing is the heart of the believer when pressed with this question, if you push yourself on this question, if you push yourself to make a decision, the believer always has the same answer. Just like when Jesus asked Peter, all these people are abandoning him in John 6, and Jesus says, are you also going to leave? And Peter answers, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. The believer is held fast even as we just sang. He will hold me fast. And so, do not be afraid to to reject your doubts. To argue with yourself. And say, no, you are telling me lies. Turn back to the Lord and, and reject your doubts and come to God in faith. And so, we, we see here in James this picture where we clearly need wisdom and we come to a God who is fabulously generous, who gives to all and He gives without reproach. So we can come to God. We can come to Him in faith. We can come to Him rejecting our pride. We can come to Him rejecting our fear. We can come to Him rejecting our doubts. 
These are the three motions we see, see here. And if you have never embraced Jesus, these are the three motions you are called to this morning as well. The three motions where you reject your pride and you turn from yourself and from your sin and from your self-effort and from your righteousness. Reject your pride and come to Jesus. We turn and come to God. We reject the fear that we would have that He is going to be a, a glowering, scowling, vengeful God which His wrath would perfectly, we would deserve. And yet, we understand who He is through the promises, through the expressions here in Scripture, and through the work of His Son. He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So you turn from your pride, you turn from your fear that would keep you from Him, and you turn from your doubts and rely wholly on Jesus, rest wholly on His finished work. And He will hold you fast. And He will give you the wisdom you need in order to meet trials of various kinds. Let's ask for His help and living this life of faith. Father, we thank You for Your demonstration of grace through these words. Pray that they would sink down into our hearts and help us to reject our pride, to reject our fear, to reject our doubts, and to come to You in full assurance of faith. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.